Welcome to the TV Writer Podcast, partner of Script Magazine, hosted by Gray Jones. You can follow me on Twitter, at Gray Jones is my handle. You can find all of these podcasts online at youtube.com slash Graham A. Jones, at scriptmag.com, or on the podcast website at tvwriterpodcast.com, where you can also find lots of other resources like the TV Writer Twitter database, with Twitter handles for over a thousand writers, and links to hundreds of free TV scripts. Now, on to the episode. My name is Gray Jones, and I want to welcome you to the TV Writer Podcast, partner of Script Magazine, episode 91 for June 2016. Well, today is part two of the two-part series on the new Master of Fine Arts in TV and Screenwriting program at Stevens College, which is a low-residency program based in Hollywood dedicated on women TV and feature writers. And today we're going to have an interview with Kanisha Foster, who is an actress and writer. She's the host of the MFA, MFA program's How I Wrote That podcast, featuring Hollywood's most successful working female writers discussing their journey and current projects. She's currently enrolled in the MFA program at Stevens College. You're going to love her interview. Enjoy. Okay, so here is Kanisha Foster. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And Kanisha is someone who um, has dabbled in a lot of things, especially you've done a lot of acting yeah. and you've made a transition towards writing. You also are the host of your own podcast, which actually sounds really, really neat. It's the How I Wrote That podcast. Yeah. And it's dedicated to women writers, mm -hmm. which is really fantastic. <laughs> um, and so welcome to the podcast. Thank and you. I want to hear all about you. Okay. Um, so my name is Kanisha Foster. Um, I did start as an actor, and I'm, I'm a mixed-race woman who started as an actor. Um, so there are like three parts every 15 years for me, um, so, <laughs> which doesn't stop me because I'm incredibly dedicated to what I do. Um, but I did find out like really early on that if I wanted to play an authentic voice that I had to figure out how to start putting things on the page and not just complain. So I was lucky because I worked a lot as an actor um, despite that. But I was in a show, and here's what you should know about me. So uh, I'm a storyteller because I come from storytellers. My father was a Black Panther, and he spent uh, the majority of my childhood in prison, and he was a career criminal. And my mom um, came from this like upper <laughs> white <laughs> um, Chicago family where they patented bubble wrap and they brought Piggly Wiggly to Midwest. So like crazy people, right? So uh, once I, I never thought about writing because I, not that I wasn't a storyteller, but it intimidated me. And I was in a play and I was backstage and um, I was telling this story about this time that my dad robbed a bank. And, uh, and I remember the room got kind of quiet because I forget that like not everybody's dad robbed a bank. And <laughs> so the room was like, um, you should probably write that down. And I was like, uh, that sounds horrifying. Yeah, let's do that because I believe in doing things that you're afraid of. So they were starting this writing collective where they would do creative nonfiction and so I was teaching acting at the time and they were teaching writing at the time at this college in Chicago called Columbia College Chicago and they were like okay we'll train you to write and you train us to act and so that's what we did and it was one of those moments that you don't realize till later is going to be magic you know like you don't realize that you're in the middle of this like informative part of your life you just think they're these are great people and I believe in what I do and I believe in what they do so it became this collective called Second Story, which I'm the associate artistic director for now. And we started to write stories. And, it, and, and then I would write, and I learned to write, and I learned to hone my craft. And then I was helping others to write and helping others to perform. And it got to the point where 
hundreds and hundreds of stories were coming across my desk every month, you know what I mean? Like to the point where we're cultivating and I've got this stack and this stack and this stack and I would read one and think, that sounds like a TV show or that sounds like a movie, that sounds like a book. And I just had this craving to know more about how you move between writing and the language of writing. And so I started to pursue that. And at the time I lived in Chicago, we moved to LA. Um, I was taking the, I took the UCLA professionals program because I wanted to know how to write screenplays. I was taking a novel writing course at Skirball because I wanted to know how to transfer all these stories into a novel, which is, I have this memoir I work on called Heroin, um, with an E in the thing. Mm -hmm. I'll be the E. <laughs> uh, because uh, my parents were heroin addicts, so it's about a little girl growing up with her parents as heroin addicts um, and overcoming that. Uh, or, you know, just kind of living with that and deciding what that means. Um, not everything has to be a total hero story. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so I was doing all of that and screenwriting, I just like dug it. And then all of a sudden I remember, I realized like, oh, they always say the thing that you love the most is the thing that you're going to, you should pursue. Right. And TV, I've been obsessed with my whole life. Like, and not just the way that kids are obsessed with TV, like not just like, oh, I know a lot about that show. And Ken, you'll talk to Ken Lizadnik at one point and he'll tell you when he brings something up, I'm like, I love that. And I think it's at the point he's like, you can't love all of those things. And I'm like, I do because I was so dedicated to TV. And like I used to, I used to have a pad of paper and like when the Oscars would come, I would take notes. And when the, um, you know, for film, of course, but and then and then when there'd be movie marathons on, like, because you couldn't, you know, when I was a kid, you couldn't you couldn't stream, but when there'd be a, a marathon on of a TV show like Nick at Night or Mork and Mindy, right? I would take out my notebook and I would take notes on the whole run run of the TV show. So as an adult, when I started to learn to write these things, it fit more than I like ever expected it to. You know, I got more excited than I, and it just really made sense. And I talked to my dad, and he'd be like, "Yeah," because when I was a kid. Um, again, he sounds like this really extreme guy by what I've told you already, but. Mm -hmm. And he is, but um, he's a very loving, cool dude, cool. And he used to, our, our living room would be um, just, he'd put out all these sheets and pillows and, and he believed that the TV should be on at all times. So we would watch, he'd think he said, you should learn to sleep with the TV on, you should have, so I was like totally different from every other kid that was like, you should have one hour of TV. My dad was like, you should wake up in the middle of the night and the TV should be on. So that's how it was wow. in my house. like. He even when my parents divorced, he was like to my mom, Julie, I think the kids really need cable. I can't, I don't think it's be appropriate for that. I will pay for cable. So, <laughs> so, so that's what it was like. Um, so when I started to tell him like, this is what I want to do. And this is, and he's a very supportive dude. He was like, yes, TV is, you are TV. You love it. You know, my sister was reading medical books and Shakespeare books from the time we were good read. And she mm. read earlier than most. And so I remember I'd watch her and be like, oh, kids are supposed to do that, you know? Like, so I learned Shakespeare because I couldn't get the medical stuff, but the language of Shakespeare I got. So I was a kid reading Shakespeare like her. And I remember when we got to school, they'd be like, they'd be like, oh, Shakespeare's really hard. And I was like, I don't understand because this is just kid stuff. Like, this is what kids do. But um, so language and story and so whether it be the story of my crazy family or the story of that we're flashing on TV or the, like just the art of language, that intrigued me. And then having two parents who speak such different languages, you know, to have a father who's a black man who grew up on the south side of Chicago, and then you go all the way down the red line 
to the, uh, to the suburbs where my mom was a white woman whose parents had never met a black person before my mom married my dad. Like, their languages are different. They may still be Chicagoans, but Chicago is the most segregated city in the world. So their languages were just, maybe not the world, but definitely United States, right? Mm. Um, so their languages were so different. So my ear would just kind of flip between these realities. And then my husband is Mexican-American and then flipping through his. And then, and then as an actor, when you're ambiguous racially, they, they, they just sort of push you towards that. Like they tell you to blend in. And so I learned to blend in, which later um, I think is not good advice. But what it did give me was this opportunity to hear people and to like really feel this kind of neutral playing zone when people would speak. Like I could feel, I would always feel like I was at their study, you know, where if I only identified as a white person, which I do identify as white, black, and mixed, then I might only be hearing in European sounds. If I only identified as black, it might be only African and Caribbean you know, kind of influences in my ear, but I identified as somebody who was supposed to hear everything. So I think that is what I like about writing characters because it's about how, who is this person? How do they fit? Who do we explore? Um, and how do I put different kinds of people on a page, which is what I'm most interested in my work. Mm. Well, that's really fascinating actually, because um, I know I've done some study of languages and, and they say with languages that if you have one parent who speaks French per se yeah. at home, and one one parent who speaks English at home, then you develop the uh, ability in your brain to have sort of one section of your brain uh, who, that's devoted to the one language mm -hmm. and the other that's devoted the, to the other, and that if you don't have parents that are that are um, separated like that, yeah. then you won't um, learn in the same way. And it's, it sounds insane. yeah, it's it sounds like if you had one parent who was very clearly a certain way of being, and the other parent that, that was very clearly a certain way of being that that might actually have given you abilities as a as a writer or as a as an actor to to be able to sort of switch gears between those yeah yeah I mean I always say like my perspective is mixed perspective because I all I often find the middle ground between things like I often hear both sides of things and want to think about how those two things relate to each other doesn't mean I'm not opinionated or I don't settle on one but my my instinct is to listen um, to all of those different aspects because you know when you grow up when, when we would travel to my dad's side of the family my grandmother on my mom's side was just horrified because she'd never been to a black neighborhood she certainly had never been to south side of chicago even though she was a real estate agent and she was just like you're you know you're gonna get shot and you know what's it like there and it's gonna be terrible for you and then we'd go and they'd be this like love fest of a community you know these our cousins were hilarious and brilliant and and caring and there was you know hugs and kisses and like epic stories that you would never hear and my grandmother's house it was very like on my mom's side very refined you know like she and I were very close but you heard a certain type of story you were allowed to tell a certain bit of that story you couldn't really dig in and so I you know I just noticed that they were much more alike than they were different and the differences were how they communicated who they were not who they authentically were mm -hmm. you know so that's interesting. And then my mom used to run the only African nightclub in Chicago with her partner. So then that was the other thing. All the top artists from all over Africa, from when I was, that was when I was like nine, um, they, they were part of our lives, kind of just like regular everyday part of our lives. So that also was like a very different aspect. Like my sister is, you're going to think I'm crazy. <laughs> okay, my sister, Ken knows. Uh, 
My sister is a Nigerian princess, <laughs> and uh, that sounds like so cool, but it's different. You know, the royalty in Africa can be different, and it doesn't necessarily mean a financial royalty. But she, her last name is Onikoyi, and her family is the Koyi family of the Koyi, Koyi Islands, Onikoyi family from the Koyi Islands. And so she went to Africa with my brother during her kind of like crowning ceremony, I think it's called, so, um, and had that this whole other experience where they had this very American upbringing and then they went there and then when they came back they had a very different perspective about what it was to be American. Mm. So also seeing that, you know, like for me growing up, up until they came, which was when I was like eight or nine, it was a very race within America perspective. Mm -hmm. And then when my mother became very involved with African culture and promoting African music, and then because my brother and sister are half Nigerian, um, then uh, it became about like, oh, the perspectives of that. And then I do a, a lot of work in Scotland and England, and then I was interested in like how those cultures are different. And, and you guys were saying that Canada is different from the United States, even though we were all like, it's not that different. And then mm -hmm. you go and you're like, no, it's different. Yeah. Um, Hopefully, I'm capturing that on the page when I write. Mm -hmm. Well, I would love to comment, a l or if you could comment a little bit about, um, I was reading your blog and, and ah. uh, being, <laughs> being very educated. Um, on, on what? Oh, how exciting. Well, <laughs> uh, it never occurred to me uh, the kind of challenges that, that you might have as a mixed race person yeah. in, the, in an acting perspective, in oh, the roles yeah. that are written. I mean, I, I've, I've heard of, of people from distinct minorities sharing with yeah. me about how challenging it can be for them because something might be written for a black person yeah. and, and an Asian person who yeah. won't even be considered for it, even yeah. though they could absolutely play that part. How much more so from a mixed race perspective? Can you comment about yeah, that? Yeah, you know, being mixed is unusual and interesting and beautiful and challenging. And um, the thing about it is there is privilege that comes with mixedness that should be acknowledged, right? So. You know, we live in a society of colorism, so, you know, the slighter skin and the way your hair falls and the way you speak, you know, there are privileges that must be acknowledged by someone who has that and um, cared for. And then when you are given a leg up in that, you, I think it's important to share it with those who may not have those same privileges because we all have some sort of privilege, right? We're like, I'm an American. I live in the United States. I have access to college. I have some sort of privilege. But there is this other thing that we don't always talk about, which is, there are, there are very few parts for people who are mixed race, and, um, and there are very few parts for all people of color. And when I had my first agent, and I walked in, and it went great, and you know I made her laugh, and she signed me right away, and I was like, this is awesome. And then she was like, great, just so you know, you're not black. <laughs> and I was like, well, but I am black. I think my dad, the Black Panther, would like object to that. And my name is Kanisha. Like, like, like with an H, with a silent H, like I could not, I am black, you know, you know, so, so I was like, oh, hold on. Um, that was my 20s, like early 20s, just out of college. And she was like, yeah, so now you're Latina. And I was like, but I'm actually not, like I have no cultural connection to that. And she was, she was like, you know, just kind of like, this is what we're doing. Um, and again, I had come from a setting where people said, blend in, you know, none of my teachers were mixed. None of, very few were people of color. I think I had two teachers who were people of color in my whole life, um, in my acting life. And it's a very different experience for an artist of color. So we're going to go into the world and our auditions don't look like your auditions. And um, the language that's used with us is not used with other people. So they, I learned a lot about being a great actor and about my craft from them. 
and I'm so grateful for my teachers of that time, but they didn't know what I was going to go into the world into. And so they told me to blend in. And what happens is when I, those first few years, I worked a lot, but I worked inauthentically. And um, I say that not with shame, um, I would make different choices now, but I think I have to own that that was not cool. You know, like that I, I didn't know that because I was just a kid trying to be an actor, but you know, I played the first film I did, I played Puerto Rican and I went to Tribeca and I had this incredible experience. And then like I was getting cast as Latina all the time, but pretty sh soon into that, I was like, these are not my parts. You know, like I would sit with people who are authentically of those cultures and they would be having connection, authentic connections. And, and I go to auditions and just feel like there was no way I could fully rock that part because I just never, I didn't have the cultural truth that other people had. And, um, and so I decided that I was going to stop playing any part that wasn't mixed with the awareness that I was going to start wor working a lot less. Mm. And it was really hard. And for three years, I still got like consistent offers on a weekly basis to pay parts. And I would say, and my language is, it remains the same. Thank you so much. Um, thank you for thinking of me. I think I know someone who would be really great for that part. Can I introduce you to them? And I, I believe in that, like being an advocate in that way, that when that you can even if you're not the one grabbing the part, that it means something to introduce someone to the right person mm -hmm. that would play that part. However, like I'm not good with free time. Like I like to do, <laughs> do things. So now I'm like, I went from working all the time to like waiting for somebody to write something for a mixed person. And, and not just that, but even as a mixed person, people don't, you know, I'll say it like this. Whenever I've played a part and I'm already in the part and people see me, they believe it. But to get in the room to audition, people expect to see a certain person. Mm. So even, as, even in a mixed world, I don't necessarily look the way that people, like, you know, mixedness is supposed to be, it has this, uh, how do I want to say it? It's um, people put this false sense that you have to be this great beauty. You know, that again, it's this like false sense of what beauty is and that mixedness is like, you know, when you say you're a mixed child, they're like, you must have the most beautiful children. And there's this thing that happens where we decide beauty looks a certain way. Mm. And, you know, I don't, I never considered myself a great beauty, even though I love myself and the way that I look. And so, again, like, even the mixed parts were these, like, fiercely stunning, like, petite women who had all of the European features. And I was like, I have lighter skin, but my features are not necessarily European. And I've got curvy person and you know like I've got broad shoulders and so for me even those few parts that came along they just didn't read as an authentic mixedness to me so and there were so many of us who I knew because I grew up in a mixed community sorry uh, who I knew because I, I grew up in a mixed community I saw all these different experiences of being mixed you know and I could and I could be with my black family and feel black and with my white family and feel white and with a mixed community and feel mixed and I could code switch between those wor worlds without even thinking about it. And I wasn't seeing anybody do that on the page. And that really, um, it, it, it did infuriate me and bother me, but I just didn't think I could be mad without doing anything about it. So um, again, so when I started writing, I was like, what, is, what does that look like? And even in my, if you see, I, I have podcasts, I have the podcast, How I Wrote That, where we interview women. And then also some podcasts from Second Story, where I tell stories. And I am interested in that. Like, 
what does it mean if I say like, I love Golden Girls <laughs> and watching that at my Nana's house, right? As much as I, you know, love rap growing up and like in hip hop, like, and why can't those things be totally true? And if you see, if you go into our, um, how I wrote that um, uh, Instagram, I think you'll see, if you just flip through and you don't, you haven't seen my face, you're going to be like, who posted this stuff? Because she's like all over the place culturally, you know, and that's the world I look at. And I think that's the world that most people look at, but because we haven't seen it on film, this thing happens, uh, even for me. So when I very rarely see someone who looks like me on TV, which again has happened two or three times in my whole life, when I very rarely see that, my first, if I were to be really honest, my first reaction is that's not a real person. And the reason that that, even though they look just like me, <laughs> they talk like me, and the reason that that's my reaction, I think, is because, you know, the number of images that you see determine what's normal for you. Like that great book and article that's incendiary, but it's um, Our Baby's Racist. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but the title is like, ugh, oh. But, <laughs> but the work is so good because the work is, it says by the time that we're three, the number of images that we see determine what's normal, right? Yeah. So, um, so if we aren't, are, if we're keeping queer stories and LGBTQ um, and I stories in the closet and we're not seeing those stories and images, experiencing those stories, we suddenly believe that it's not normal to be part of those communities. Same thing for people of color, same thing for mixed stories. And we even internalize that oppression about ourselves, right? So we start to, when we finally start to see something that represents us, a little part of us, and I, maybe, maybe other people don't feel this way, I, I own the fact a little part of me my first reaction is like, like, oh, maybe that's not authentic. And I have to fight that when I'm writing too because my, my images are the ones that I've watched in, the, in that kind of pillow bedroom 24 hours a day with the TV on where there weren't any mixed kids and I had to, you know, and I had to learn the language of somebody else, right? Again, it goes back to language. So when I write, I mean, I'm a big believer in drafts because my first draft is usually a, a real mess because I want to write something that nobody's seen before. Hmm. And it's really hard to do that when you have the voices of, of like the history of television and cinema and plays and America <laughs> like running through your head all the time. It's really hard to like go, okay, I'm going to say something about like who I am in the world that I don't see anybody saying. Not that it doesn't exist or people haven't tried to say it, but I haven't seen it. So, um, so my first drafts are like, I'm like, <laughs> I, it's so funny in second story, I'm sort of notorious because we write these stories and everybody else is like beautifully crafted at the beginning. And I like turn in stuff and people who haven't worked in with me before, I can see them go like, they're like looking at each other like, maybe this won't work, like maybe this is maybe, I, I don't know, this is kind of a mess. And I'm like, right, it's a mess. It's my first draft. You know, like I'm trying to say something that I'm trying to discover something, but don't worry, I understand craft, it's coming, you know? <laughs> you know? And um, luckily they were a really supportive environment and my community there really taught me about drafts and really taught me the importance of putting it all on the page and then whittling it away and getting I, specific. I love the term vomit draft. I love that. And then like bird by bird, shitty first draft, that chapter, I just reread it constantly. Mm -hmm. Um, but my favorite thing is by the time we get to performance and knock on wood, I've never had a moment where like, because we work with musicians and we work with other people or people who haven't seen my process before. I've never had a moment where they don't stop me after and they go like, 
I had no idea what, what was going to, like that was going to become this and that you were going to find all of these aspects. And I'm like, yeah, I get it. Like, and it must've been scary for you because <laughs> we're working together. And like, again, like I try to honor their time. It's not that I'm being reckless as a writer, but um, I think that like risk is hard as an artist because again, like I could have, I could have spent my time playing the parts that I would get cast in and making a living and then showing my children that I don't mind <laughs> changing my voice. My, not my voice, because I love him, it's my humanity, like mm -hmm. changing my actual human being that I was given from my parents to make a living. Or I could decide to be a risk taker and, um, you know, like have bigger spaces between how I work, but have greater satisfaction about how I work. And um, perhaps it's like the fact that my parents were these great rebels that made me choose the latter, but I just like, I, I'm, you know, and also I think because my father spent a lot of time in prison, I like, I'm obsessive about justice. <laughs> so like, I'm like, you know, like, not that he didn't do things that landed him there, but also, you know, there were all of these things that created who he was to become as a black man in America in the 60s. So um, here's this brilliant man who I think would have been a doctor and a top-notch doctor who ended up going to prison for a long time. Um, and Ken knows the story, but the story is short, but my dad went to the Navy to become, uh, he wanted to go to dental school because he was 10 of 12 children and he wanted to be a doctor, but he couldn't afford it. And he ended up, there were Klan members hiding in the Navy and they tortured him and they buried him in the desert and they left him to die. And it was him going AWOL the first time that started him being arrested. And it was that that led to his addiction and it was that that led to him becoming this other person for a while, which, you know, so my childhood was seeing this guy who was um, fighting between this person he was gonna be and this person he became. So like the most valiant, beautiful man you can imagine mixed in with this person who's like really struggling with their demons. And again, like as a storyteller, I'm sure what happened to me as an adult is I look back and I'm like, what does that mean? That, like, what does it mean to be good? What does it mean to be bad <laughs> you know is he bad is he good is he more is it more complex than that and again it's the mixed the mixedness in me like what does it mean to have something on the page that is not just one cultural truth but it has like these cultures kind of overlying and they're not just racial cultures but you know what does it mean to kind of set things next to each other that you think don't fit and explore what happens if they do mm. but again i think that's hard to do so you know, I, I look at my dad's story all the time. I did it in heroin and I do it um, in my nonfiction and I have a screenplay um, that I initially wrote a draft outside of our MFA but got to do a rewrite with Ken in our MFA called Little Panther. And it's about this little girl who wants to, who's mixed, who wants to be a Black Panther like her father but she doesn't understand what violence really is. And um, so my dad was supposed to be there uh, when, when uh, Huey Newton was killed in Chicago during the massacre and he he was late because his girlfriend had his gun and he <laughs> like, and this is how I find out in history class we learned about it because I grew up in a mixed area so and I went home and I was like dad did you know that like the Black Panthers were massacred in Chicago he was like I was there which is like <laughs> how my dad always was like when we went to see the fugitive <laughs> and the for the first time with Harrison Ford and when Harrison is like on the run and the FBI is searching for him and after the movie, I was like, Dad, that was so cool. And he was like, oh, you think that's cool? 
You think it's cool to be on the run from the FBI? And I was like, sort of. You know? <laughs> my dad was like, well, when I was on the run, from, that was the first time I'd ever heard he was on the run from the FBI. When I was on the run from the FBI, it wasn't, I was in my girlfriend's, you know, attic and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, what are you talking about that you've been on the run from the FBI? He's like, twice. I'm like, what is happening? But he was that kind of guy where like all of a sudden he'd just like, unravel all these truths you'd never heard before and you'd be like whoa I never even he's complicated you know my mom is complicated too my mom is this woman who seems really uh like cheerful and happy and she's much more complicated than that but she's been taught you know just to ignore the things that hurt and keep going where my dad is like tell me everything you feel like my dad is like if you met him he'd be like we're gonna cry we going to talk, we going to laugh. And you're like, yeah, okay, but like in the next five minutes? And he's like, yes. <laughs> you know, my mom is like, everything's fine. Don't, don't say I love you too much. Everything's going to be good. Um, so again, like these antithesis are interesting to me. And so in the MFA, I really, my teachers have been great about letting me explore antithesis and like letting me explore. So my, for my, original pilot, which I'm super psyched about. I love it. Um, Brian Bird, one of our teachers who is like, whose show is like crazy, um, going crazy well on Hallmark. It just got renewed for another season. Brian helped me develop this um, piece that I had an idea about called Second Family, which is that there's an African-American family that's like an artist family in Austin. And um, the father's white, so they're mixed race family. And then he dies and you find out that he's got a conservative white family in Houston and that he's been going between these two families and now these two families have to deal with each other. And that was born out of, uh, one, it was born out of uh, getting to study with Bill Rabkin too in the MFA and he's, you know, so knowledgeable about TV. And so when we read his book and we were talking to him and we were, I was asking the questions he asked you to ask about what makes a great TV show. And then, but then I was asking myself in terms of like how does that apply to me and my life experience because that's what Ken is always saying like tell your truth within all of that his oh, book like Bill Rapkin's book everybody should read that book I know. Mm -hmm. it's I know. this quickest read yeah. and there are certain books that you know you reread whenever you're gonna I reread whenever I'm gonna write um, and uh, and and I that's one because it asks you questions and it mm. gets you to be active about what you're about to write and I need that or right, I enjoy that anyway um, but I really like when I was reading it and thinking about it and brainstorming about what my idea would be and then when we got in the room and we were talking to Brian and you know I forget like when I write a story about my dad robbing a bank or <laughs> my dad's insane life or like you know I tell this story I tell the story about like this time when I was a kid we weren't we weren't little after a certain point we weren't allowed to let my dad in the house because he was a thief mm -hmm. because at that point it was really heavy into his addiction and so like, uh, he wouldn't mind me telling you this. He's, he's sober now and he's like, tell the stories, they're yours. Um, but like, you know, we used to, my mom was in the hospital once and we went to visit her and he stole her keys and he went and stole everything from our apartment. And so he was banned from the hospital. And then we went back to him with the hospital. We got arrested with him like several times when I was a kid. Um, but he was that kind of person when he was in his addiction. So uh, this one time he was, we weren't supposed to let him in and my mom was at work and we were latchkey kids and um, my sister would always want to let him in and I would always be like, no, the rules again, the rules, <laughs> I'm into the rules. Mm -hmm. And so he was, 
he was it was his condo and I knew he had a certain amount of time before he'd come upstairs so I was gonna hide the TV and the VCR in the closet so that he couldn't take it but somebody had let him in downstairs so I miscalculated how long it would take him to get up the stairs and he walked in the front door and I was he caught me hiding the TV and he, he sat me down and he lectured me and he was like you know he was like this is what you think of me and I'm your father and like how can you do these things and I felt terrible I felt like I like, shamed him and and then you know he hugged me he told me he loved me and then he walked out the front door and then I and then uh, about two minutes later my mom walked in probably more than two minutes but my mom walked in with the TV under one arm and the VCR under the other and she's like was your father here and I looked to the closet which was still in my view and my dad who I thought I'd been watching the whole time and he had stolen the TV and the VCR while I was watching him Wow! and so I was like this is some kind of weird magic you know <laughs> like this ability to do something like that um, and yeah there's like the terrible things like oh but I also loved my dad and I understood who he was at the heart of all of that so even though it was uh, painful things like that it was also like how did he do that you know like how did he walk out with that stuff while I was watching him and like what what kind of I was always curious like how does that work you know so I was telling stories like that to Bill <laughs> mm -hmm. and stories like about that difference of like having a father who's you know like teaching you to steal in front of your face like he used to teach me and if it was cold outside in the winter he would bust open whatever car was around and and get inside and turn it on and turn the heat on <laughs> so like, you know and he'd be like so I was like oh that's how you steal a car you know like uh, that's how you you know like oh like if you know like we, when we got locked out of the house as a kid, we would just break in because we knew how to break into houses. You know what I mean? And my mom would be like, oh, did you break in in front of the neighbors again? You know, we'd be like, mom, well, I forgot my keys. You know, like, so you'd be like, don't let people see you break in. Like, don't let people know that this is like something that you can do. And so I, again, I'm a, like extremely, uh, almost to a fault moral person, um, because, I think because of all of that. But I'm always thinking, like yesterday I walked by one of those like uh, police officers who give tickets on the bikes. Mm. And he was down the block and he had left his bike on the corner. And I, the, my first thought is always like, I'll steal the bike. You know, but I'm like, but Kanisha would never steal that bike. But I'm like, he's, my brain goes, he's 20 seconds away. And if I jump on the bike and I go that way, there's no way that he'll find me. And then I, you know, like just for the fun of it, and then I could hide the bike and then, you know, like I think through that. I would never do that. But every time an opportunity like that presents itself, I think through it. Wow. I think like somebody's purse is open. I'm like, I could take that. And, uh, you know, once the head of my theater program was like, my backpack was open and he closed it and he was like, you got to be careful. There's bad people out there. And I was like, mm-hmm. You know, like, yeah. I well, that, yeah. that sounds like that would, that could um, inspire a lot of really interesting writing. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they, these, they're very unique stories. I don't know many people who, who have that kind of a, a, a background. But, but tell me about sort of transitioning into yeah. your experience with the, the Stevens College uh, MFA program. You yeah. said that a lot of your writing has been um, developed through that program. And tell yeah. me about the, your experience with specifically how the program has helped you. Oh, man, the program is so cool. Okay. Uh, I have to tell you that Ken Lezednik's in the room and I'm going to brag about him. And it's not because he's in the room because I brag about him all the time. 
Um, so he, everyone says he's like the most generous, uh, kind man in Hollywood, but also one of the most competent. So sometimes people use one to denote the other, but uh, he can do both so beautifully. But he's really created a space um, where we get a lot of individual care and attention and where he really intentionally pairs us with people who cultivate our true voice, which is really difficult to find. Um, and uh, and so, we, you know, like during that time I've written, essentially in the first year, one year in, I've written a brand new feature, I've rewritten the feature, I've written a spec script of Masters of Sex, and I've written uh, a, the first draft of a pilot. Um, that's uh, included with our history of screenwriting work, which is extensive, and so, you know, we've read, <laughs> how many books have we read this year? So many. Our history of screenwriting teacher wants us to write, read a bunch of books on each era and compare and contrast, which I so appreciate because we talk a lot about how women's voices have been taken out of the history of screenwriting, even though they were so prevalent at the beginning of it and throughout. Um, and also, you know, our history of te screenwriting teacher has been so supportive of my um, obsessive need to know where people of color fit in the history of screenwriting and not in a surface way. Like she digs and she finds things that she already has that knowledge and then she digs and finds more and more because she knows it matters to me. And, and people do that for each each person gets that for whatever they're passionate about. Our teachers are like, that's what you're passionate about? Let me help you dig into that more. Let me figure out what that is. Or I have some of that or I'm going to you know, bring someone in who knows that. So, um, And we're partnered with a different mentor on each piece, which I think is also a real plus hmm. because they're all working in the industry. Um, so like again, like Brian, getting a pilot ready with somebody who has a very successful show on the air and has written for very successful shows. And, you know, he's always like, well, this time that Morgan Freeman and I sold this show to Showtime, you're like, cool, could I have more notes from you? You know, you know what I mean? Like, it's that kind of experience where he's not saying it for that. He's like in the middle of a story and he just mentions that. But um, you really trust their notes and you trust them to open up. And because I was a teacher for a long time too, I can be critical of being a student and teachers and how they teach because I believe I've done a lot of studying and an and application to what makes an effective teacher and how to be present for your students. And so that really matters to me. Mm -hmm. And um, I think what they have, which is their greatest strength, is they ask the questions that opens up your, that, that will open up your work in your voice. You know, the difference between a teacher who's great at what they do but not great at teaching, which is sometimes when they like tell you what they think should be, mm -hmm. what they would do. As opposed to that, they give you their knowledge with, without um, undermining what their strengths are, but they also are asking the questions that get your voice on the page. And that's, um, I mean, there's so much studies that say, so many studies that say that in MFA programs, sometimes that's what's missing, mm -hmm. is that you have teachers who really understand how to make you the best writer you are, as opposed to have, how to make you them. And well, why don't you talk about that a little bit in terms of, um, what you see as the the pros of this low residency yeah. mentor um, program versus a standard MFA. Yeah, I mean, totally. First of all, it's becoming more and more common, I think, for writing to be a low residency because so much of your time has to be you writing. So in some ways, it makes perfect sense. You know, other, other MFAs may not make sense to do a low residency, but you're writing, you need to be working in that space when you get your notes and then taking your notes and then going away and applying them. So for me, um, 
it's such a perfect fit for a screenwriter because that's what you're doing all the time. You know, you're going, you're you're getting your outline together, you're getting your treatment together, and they're very thorough on outlines and treatments and um, really structure and how we look at that. Um, and and then you're submitting, you're getting notes, you're applying those notes, you're submitting again, and so, you know, in the months between workshop days, and I'll talk about workshop days in a second. Mm -hmm. That's what you're doing, and that's what we're going to be doing hopefully in the industry. Um, it, and even if we're in a writer's room, you know, you're breaking the story together, but then you're going away and doing your pages, right? And then you're coming back with your pages. So um, in that way, the model is so right um, for, for, for that element of being a writer. Um, uh, and then um, I think the mentor, again, the mentor thing is that if it were a full-time MFA, sometimes you can't get the teachers that we can get, you know? because they just wouldn't always have the time to be in a classroom five days a week. Mm. So when we, the people that come into our room, they're like totally dedicated to us and they're able to craft time for us in a way that makes sense for them that they wouldn't do in a full-time MFA. Mm. Um, and at the same time, this is something that's really special I think about what we do is because our MFA unapologetically focuses on women in TV and screenwriting, it's open to everybody and I think that element shouldn't deter men from applying because it, you will get this uh, attention that you probably wouldn't get somewhere else. But what happens is we see the women at the top of their industry, they come in, the women on our podcast, they come in and they invest in us in a way that I think wouldn't happen because they understand what we're entering into. Like mm. It goes back to when I was an undergrad and I didn't have teachers of color and they didn't understand. Yeah. You know, the women that come into our rooms understand, they know. And so they teach us really specifically and energetically. And they're like, really, I, I've said that Winnie Holtzman came in, again, My So-Called Life, who was like, was there ever a more perfect pilot than My So-Called Life? Mm -hmm. She came in and talked to us. And I've seen her speak in other arenas. And you know, she started to speak uh, about all the things that she talks about normally that are all really great and important things. And there was this one moment where she just kind of, and I won't tell you what she said, but I'll tell you that she stopped. She kind of like looked around at this room full of, you know, of the 20 candidates, 17 of us were women. And we closed the door and she was like, all right. <laughs> and then it was like her physicality changed and you knew that she was sharing something with us that not every room was going to get. Mm -hmm. And we've seen that again and again and again in our workshop days, which is that the women who come speak, they get it, you know, they get it and they get what we're trying to accomplish and they've. Uh, they've done the business of it, so it's not just this esoteric idea of we could really develop our voices in authentic way as women and then produce stuff that nobody will ever make, you know? That's not the goal. Mm -hmm. The goal is to have an authentic voice and to create work that people will buy and to be the person that you hire for the writer's room. You know, we're, we're realistic about how we enter into the work. Um, so to have a woman who both connects to you in an authentic way and is also telling you, like, these are the notes you need to do to get this script to the next level. You know, you're just able to break a barrier that you couldn't break before. I remember Diane Lynch, who right, is the head of Stevens. I remember her saying that when we were talking. In, in the MFA was starting and I got to go to lunch with Ken and Diane. And Diane was saying like, what Stevens offers is that women in this closed space together really do get to uncover their real voices. And then their real voices don't go away when they go into male dominated spaces but because they've had a place to get rooted in their true voices, that those voices carry on throughout their lives. And um, that's what we're seeing. 
Well, that is that is fantastic, and uh, <laughs> I, think so. I think that's actually a great place to to end up. Um, but before we end, um, I do want to mention your podcast, How I Wrote That. How yeah. do people find that? Okay, so How I Wrote That, you can go to the website, which is www.howiwrotethat.com. Uh, you can also go to SoundCloud, and you can also go to iTunes. Mm -hmm. um, a little treat for you, we've got Megalophove coming up in a couple of weeks. We already recorded it, um, who obviously was nominated for an Oscar for Inside Out and wrote The Good Dinosaur and is writing the first Marvel female-led superhero movie, uh, Captain Marvel, so she's so great. Uh, we're, gonna, we're interviewing Linda Wolverton coming up, who wrote Beauty and the Beast and Maleficent, and who's known for like really taking the idea of a of like a princess having to be saved by someone else, taking that back and having an intelligent woman be the lead character. Of love film, that, you know? Oh, yeah. I love her. She's, and it's so funny because when she, she came, she came to talk to us at the, at the MFA for our mm -hmm. workshop days. We're like, oh, cool. We're sitting with Linda Wolverton. She's so great. Um, but like in that moment, I realized all of these movies that I loved as a kid because they had those characters, she had written. Hmm. Like, like, and then my brother and sister, I called my brother and sister after and was like, remember everything that we loved? She did it. <laughs> you know, but then she's sitting with us and giving her, uh, you know, she's so generous to both do, come to our MFA and then to let me come to her home and interview her for the podcast. And Very, very cool. And Twitter? Um, Twitter, uh, you can look at, well, we have uh, MFA Screenwriter. At mm -hmm. MFA Screenwriter is our, podca our podcast connects to the college Twitter. Mm -hmm. You can find me at, at Kanisha Foster. My, remember I told you I had the silent H, so it's mm -hmm. Khan, Nisha, Khan like Shaka Khan, Kanisha Foster. I'm the only Kanisha Foster ever, so mm -hmm. you'll find me. <laughs> you'll find me. My awesome. Guy. Well, thank <laughs> you so much for um, being so generous with your time. Oh, yeah. And it's so exciting to hear about this program and how it's already been helping you. I mean, that's a lot of productivity. Um, yes. When I hear about other programs to, to rewrite a feature, write another feature, to, um, to write a spec as well as a first yeah. draft of a pilot in one year, yeah. as well as all your other coursework. That, yeah. That's really impressive. I'll tell you, I've, I know we're going, but I gotta tell you, like, you know, when you're raised by a, a black parent, which um, Scandal actually, when they did this monologue, black people everywhere were like, yes. They tell you you have to work twice as hard to get half as far. And women understand that too. Like we, and so that's what's neat too. It's a low residency, but people are ready to throw down. <laughs> like all the women who come are, they're just workhorses. And so what we thought would, would not, you know, you think a low residency won't be ensemble, like won't be a people lifting each other up, but that's been the opposite. Like we text and call and we send each other stuff all the time and we're so connected to each other and everybody works so hard then you want to work twice as hard. And I think it's that, it's that we know that if we're going to be the ones who get hired, we have to go above and beyond. And we have no problem doing that. So, um, yeah, if, you're one, if one of your questions is, if I'm in a low residency, will I really get the bang for the buck? Like, will I really be digging in and getting the work and learning? Yeah. yeah look, call any of our MFA people. They'll first tell you how exhausted they are and then tell you about how much awesome work they did and how proud they are of it, you know. Which, you know, nobody keeps, like, slim hours in Hollywood. So, <laughs> so it seems like good practice to me. Great. Well, thanks so much. Thank you. I want to thank this week's sponsors, Blackmagic Design, makers of DaVinci Resolve 12 edit software, and much more at blackmagicdesign.com. If you've got kids eight and under, they're going to love the fun animated songs at abc123songs.com. I want to remind you that you can follow me on Twitter, at Gray Jones is my handle for the latest updates, 
And as always, there are tons of resources at tvwriterpodcast.com. You can find all of these podcasts on YouTube at youtube.com slash Graham A. Jones. See you next time.